So a uh, question, uh, when was the last time you spent, you know, any time, maybe a little bit of time, maybe a, a lot of time, when was the last time uh, you spent any time thinking about words? Just words, not individual words, but, but the actual idea of words, the, the concept of words. And I, I can tell by the way you're kind of looking at me, not lately. Uh, it, it's, it's been a while since you thought about just the idea or the concept of words, but words as a concept, uh, words as, as an idea or as in a reality, it, it's, they're far more fascinating than many of us uh, have taken time or actually have time to realize. Um, so I'm gonna help us think about it for just a moment in order to set up what I would like to talk to us about today. Uh, here's something to think about when it comes to words. Uh, words can emerge, emerge suddenly in time. Uh, words can emerge so, suddenly in time. Uh, you can think about this, that once upon a time, uh, there were no words. Uh, there was a time in history where there were no words at all. And then words came into being, words were born. And every word that now exists, once upon a time, it didn't exist. And, and then, you know, in different pockets of, of our planet, you know, in different cultures or whatnot, words would, would emerge. And, and this actually happens more times than, than we actually realize, I think, because when words are born, they emerge as an expression. Uh, this is important, actually. You know, words, words emerge as an expression of thoughts or feelings or a reality of a particular group of people at a particular point in time uh, with a very particular meaning. So a word will be born uh, to a particular group of people. It has a particular meaning at a particular moment in time. And, and that moment in time, it always reflects that original intent at that moment in time. So a word comes into be to uh, express the feelings, the thoughts and the reality of, of a people. And so this happens all the time. Uh, you know it does, you, you use words that have been born in your era, uh, but you haven't thought about it. Words like this, selfie. Selfie was born in 2002. Uh, before that, there, nobody really used the word selfie. There's no documented use of the word selfie. It showed up in an article in 2002. Uh, before that, if you'd been like, you know, uh, at a park, at an overlook, or at a museum, or if you were just in a crowded group of people and you looked at the person next to you and you said, hey, I think this is a great place for a selfie. What about you? <laughs> like they scoot the kids away. It's like, what? What, do you, what did you say to me? Uh, you know, but then 2002, everybody started using it and then boom, it's a word. It even ends up in, you know, the Oxford Dictionary. Then photobomb. Photobomb was born in 2008. That means in 2007, if you'd been in church and said, photobomb, it would have been a serious concern. It's like, what is that? What happened? You know, it could have possibly got you into some trouble in a theater or something. But, but before that, it wasn't even a word. And then because out of a culture emerged this expression or this thought or this reality, uh, all of a sudden there's a new word and it ends up in the dictionary. Here's a more recent word, noob. It's not a body part, uh, it's noob. It started in the gaming world online, but then you know it's now kind of the idea that you're inexperienced, you're a noob, a newbie. Uh, you know, you're inexperienced at something and that just got you know, in the dictionary in the last couple of years. Here's another one, memify, memify. The ancient Egyptians, they mummified people. Us in our modern sophistication, we memify people. Uh, you know, they just live on forever on the internet. You make a meme of them. S some of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about and it's okay, you're probably blessed more so than, than the rest of us. Then here's another one, it just got in. No, not that. 
wrong screen, there you am. Amorite, it's not the Old Testament group uh, that fought the Israelites. Th this kind of is really a monument to our laziness. Um, you know, it, it's really, am I right? But we didn't want a space. And so it's just, am I right? Am I right? Am I right? You tell me, you know. Or ish, ish, just in case you're curious, it's a modifying adverb um, that means to some extent, hey, are you, you feel bad? Ish. Are you happy? Ish. How's the sermon so far? Ish. Or Zoom? Zoom, that was a big one uh, in 2020. You know, before 2020, if you had looked at somebody and said, hey, you wanna Zoom each other tonight? No, no, I don't. There'll be no Zooming for me and you later tonight, you know. But all of a sudden, everybody knows what it, it emerges. It just comes up from the culture. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of knows what it means. Here, here's one, I, just a few more. Zaddy. I don't know if you're laughing because you know or you're just intrigued. It, it, it means a super attractive guy, like somebody really charming, like zaddy, you know, like Ruth looked at Boaz, zaddy, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but here's the better one, snack. You think you know what a snack is, but men, we have been objectified. <laughs> this is what women are now referring to some of you as. Some of us are still an entree. Some of you are just a snack, but it's like, hey, you little snack you, man, what a snack there. You know, new word. I mean, it's like, it's in there. How about this one? Fluffernutter. Hey, come over tonight, man. We're, we're having a party of fluffernutters. It's gonna be awesome. It's like, what in the world? It's, it's a peanut butter sandwich with marshmallow cream between two pieces of bread. It's like, how did fluffernutter come from that? I guess fluffy marshmallows and the, I don't know. But, and then this is, this is the last, Sersley. Sersley. And again, if you can't figure it out, it's just a shorter way, a lazier way in the West of saying, seriously, seriously, seriously. We've had that in Appalachia for decades. Seriously, seriously. Now, that, that, those are new words, but, but here's the thing. A word, when it first comes into existence, over time, it may not maintain that meaning. Uh, words can evolve slowly over time. Uh, the word sophisticated, when it, when it first emerged, it meant, you know, unnatural. It meant contaminated. So you'd look at something dirty or contaminated, you would say, that's so sophisticated. And now it means, you know, urbane or discriminating. It's like, you know, almost an inverted meaning of how it first started. And that's kind of weird, you know, or nice. Nice originally started off as foolish. You know, stop acting nice. It's like, what? And, and now, you know, it actually meant a few other things. It meant coy, it meant shy and dainty. And now it's kind of agreeable. Awful, we all, you know, awful, that's awful. Originally it was the opposite. It was like something worthy of awe, something full of awe, that God is awful. Not God is terrible, but God is just, he's so full of awe and that's what it meant. Uh, bully, originally bully uh, meant sweetheart. Okay, like, hey, I hope I marry my bully. I love my bully. And then it, it evolved and now it's somebody who you know, obviously mistreats, mistreats someone, abuses someone. Silly meant innocent, now it's frivolous. Uh, gentle meant to be born of a good family at high standing and now it's just you know, mild-mannered mild and kind. But, but words can change. Now I say all that to say this, words matter. Words matter, how we choose to use words matters. 
how we choose to define words matters more. Uh, so we have to understand a little bit about words and, and because how we define words actually is more important than how we use words because how we define words not only determine how we use them, but it actually determines how we see things. It, it determines how our mind thinks about things. And when our mind interacts with those meanings that exist between objects and concepts and ideas and words, it actually begins to shape the way we live our lives. And so today I wanna talk about one word I wanna talk about one word and how we define it. One of the most important words we will ever sit down and think about, what does this word mean? Because once upon a time, this word came into existence. Once upon a time, this word showed up to be an expression of a particular group of people at a particular time. And this meaning, this meaning has evolved over time, and it means even different things for different people still today because it's a little bit subjective. But this is the most important word you and I will ever define. It's the word greatness. Greatness. How do you define greatness? What does that mean for you? If somebody said, hey, tell me your definition of what it means to be great at life, to live a life of greatness, what does a life of greatness look like? Can you spot it? Is it visible? Is it discernible? Uh, what does a great person look like? You know, we say that all the time. Well, they're a great person. She, she's a great lady. He, he's a great man, man. They're a great family. We use the word great all the time. What does being a great person, what does it actually look like? What does a great person actually sound like? What does doing great things actually mean? Oh, they've done some great things in their life. I'm telling you, they've done, they've done some great things in their life. What does that mean? What, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? What does that mean to us? And people define greatness in a lot of different ways. It's become subjective. It's become relative. And it has emerged within different cultures to mean different things at different times throughout history. For some people, greatness, a life of greatness, it's just wealth. I mean, it's just, it's having enough money. It's having more money. It's having so much money. You can spend all the money you want and not miss it. You can save all the money that you need and not have to worry about it in the future. It's just like, you know, just bring on the bucks because the more, the more, the more, the more, it's just, it's just, that's greatness right there. I can do what I want. I've got security. I've got peace of mind. That, that's greatness. That's how some people define it. For some people, the idea of greatness is connected to their physical appearance. And so somehow they perceive that greatness has something to do with the way that they look, their style, uh, their weight, their level of being in shape, uh, their, their, the way that they uh, appear in front of people, the way that you know, they wanna appear on social media. Uh, somehow their physical appearance is some, somehow connected to their idea of greatness, that you gotta look a particular way, you gotta dress a particular way, people have gotta think about you a very particular way in order to actually be, to be great. Uh, for some people, greatness is about living life on your own terms. So I, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. I'm, I'm me, I'm gonna do me, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do, how I wanna do it. And if I can do what I wanna do, how I wanna do it, then, then that's, to me, that's greatness. That's, that's a great life because too many people are just living life to do what everybody else wants them to do and they're trying to be who everybody else wants them to be. Uh, for some, greatness is about you know, perseverance. That, that you face problems, you face storms, you face difficulties, and greatness is just about being able to push through that. 
that, that you just refused to quit. You fell down, but you got back up. And, and that's kind of greatness. You know, you just, you didn't give up. You, you didn't quit. Uh, for some, it's overcoming. You just, didn't, you just didn't refuse to quit, but you actually got past some things. You actually had some wins in the column. You, you had some victories. Uh, for some parents, success or the idea of greatness in life is all about their children. Uh, their children needs to do better. Their children needs to be great, whatever that means. Their children need to be successful and have great jobs and be top of the class and be first team, all conference, all state, all American. And, and that's the idea of greatness, man. We, that was great. We got our kids, you know, they're, they're doing so well. They're, they're great. Um, for some people, it's climbing to the top. It's just being at the top. It's getting the promotion. It's being in charge. It's like being at the top of the ladder. It's finishing first. That's what greatness is. Greatness is winning. Greatness is first place. And, and so it means lots of things. I'm sure if we all had a card this morning and wrote down what does greatness mean, what does greatness look like, there would be some interesting answers if we were all honest. But what if, what if greatness as a word, what, what if greatness as an idea and an ideal, what if greatness isn't subjective? What if there is actually an objective definition for greatness that you can apply to your life and that I can apply to my life? What, is, what if there's an objective idea that I'm supposed to have in my mind, an ideal that I'm supposed to pursue as it relates to greatness? And for Jesus followers, for Jesus followers, there is an objective definition for greatness. Jesus, the one that we follow, our teacher, our master, our king, our Lord, our savior, Jesus cast a vision for his followers. And a part of that vision was to be great. Jesus has never been interested in mediocrity. Uh, Jesus has never been interested in average. Jesus has never been, you know, interested in us as followers being like everybody else. So he casts a vision. He says, hey, if you wanna be great and I think you should be, I'm gonna tell you what greatness is. And it's a version of greatness that's actually good for you. It's healthy for you. And it's healthy and good for everybody around you. And so we're gonna look at a passage of scripture where Jesus actually defines what greatness is and what greatness looks like and the actual greatness that you and I are supposed to be busy pursuing. And so the passage that we're gonna look at in the Gospel of Matthew happens on the heels of Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. Uh, if you'll remember, you know, this rich young ruler came up to Jesus one day and said, hey, you know, tell me what I got to do, teacher, to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, okay, I'll tell you what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You need to sell all of your possessions and you need to give it to the poor. And then you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And the rich young ruler thought about how much he had and thought about how costly that was. And it says that he went away sorrowful because he just didn't want to do what Jesus asked him to do. He was too kind of caught up in his own world, caught up in his own idea of what great is or what great looks like. And so on the heels of that, Jesus begins to talk about how difficult it is for people like that to inherit the kingdom of God. He says, it's not impossible with God, but it's very difficult for people who are so wrapped up in their own lives, who've gotten so self-consumed, so self-interested, that it's really difficult for those type of people to actually find the kingdom of God. And so he, he tells that story and then he says what he says. And then it says that Peter answered Jesus. Peter answered Jesus and said, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> that guy wouldn't leave anything. That guy wouldn't, he wasn't willing to give up a penny. 
He wasn't willing to leave anything behind, but we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter doesn't beat around the bush and you know, for all the things that Peter does, you gotta love just how brass he is and how, how honest he is. This is kind of what you call consumer thinking. What's in it for me? What's every commercial on television geared towards answering? The question of what's in it for me? That's the whole marketing ploy of capitalism. What's in it for me? And if there's something in it for me, then I, I, wanna, I wanna buy it. I wanna move in that direction. And so he says, what's in it for me? I mean, he, he's approaching this almost like an economic transaction. He, he's, he's kind of, you know, a little bit self-centered in this moment. He says, okay, that guy wouldn't leave anything. Um, so he's not gonna get the kingdom of God. We've left everything. So what's in it for us? And it's almost like Peter was saying, you know, we've been following you and this has kind of been on our mind and these guys, they won't ever speak up. They won't ever ask. They're always nudging me when you're not looking. And they're saying, ask him, ask him, ask him. And so we all been kind of wondering, since we decided to follow you and we got on, you know, we got on the Jesus train and, and we're all Jesus, team Jesus. We were kind of wondering, what's in it for us? What's in it for me? We followed you not only because you're, you're, you're Jesus. I mean, we did follow you because you're Jesus. That whole thing, follow me, put your nets on the other side. That was awesome. And so, you know, we followed you because of you. But we also, if we were being really, really, really honest, we also followed you because we thought maybe there would be some things you would be able to do for us. So it wasn't completely about you. So I'm, I'm kind of now wondering what's in it for us. Because we thought, you know, if we served you, you would in some way serve us, that there would be a benefit to this, that there would be a profit to this, there would be a gain. What's in it for me? All this stuff that I've done, you know, all this inconvenience, what's in it for me? Now, this, this, is, a, this is not only Peter, this is, a, this is the way a lot of Christians in America in the 21st century, this is the way they approach their faith. This is kind of their, their biggest mindset when it comes to faith. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's why there's such a thing as the prosperity gospel that says, hey, if you'll have faith, God will do it for you. If you'll just pray in faith, God will do it for you. God's like a vending machine. You put enough in, you keep on hitting the button, you're gonna get something out. And so there, there's a whole theological movement out there that's totally geared towards answering the question, what's in it for me? New house, debt-free, new car, better wife, better husband, prettier children, smarter children. You know, it's just what's in it for me? You know, if you follow me, you're gonna get something out of it because we figure that if we serve you, there'll be moments in time, God, where you serve us. And so a lot of people approach their faith this way. A lot of people approach the local church this way. Uh, a lot of people who call themselves a member of a local church or a part of the local church, uh, basically, uh, they decide what church they wanna be a part of uh, when they ask the question, what's in it for me? Well, what's in it for me? And so that type of question, that type of thinking is what we would call, you know, something that causes us to be consumers. And people who are always asking the question, what's in it for me, seldom ever get concerned about moving from being consumers to actually being contributors. People who are always asking the question, what's in it for me? They're, they're really always more interested in spectating than they are moving from spectating to actually participating. Uh, what's in it for me driven type thinking is, is the type of lifestyle that ends up me saying, give me, give me, give me, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna be less willing to ever consider actually giving because I'm too busy just wanting to take. 
Uh, and when these type of people, and I'm not saying you're those type of people, but you know these type of people, they'll be here at 1130. Uh, but, but you know, it's like when they show up, it's like they're so consumer driven. What's in it for me today? What's in it for me today? What's in it for me today? And when they don't like what they came to consume, what do they do? They criticize. Well, I didn't like the music. Did it hurt your ears? Hurt my ears. I've only got one. Maybe not anymore. It's like, did you like the sermon? No, it was, it was too short. He doesn't preach long enough. You know, people complain about that all the time. And uh, it's like, he should have gone longer. And it's, you know, and, and this or that. And we just become critical. When we are consumers, we're just critical because we feel like that's our responsibility is to be critical when we're consumers. Uh, we're less likely to be critical when we're participating and involved and invested in all of that. And so this is kind of where Peter is. This is where the disciples are right now. Uh, they're thinking it's all about them. And there's moments when you've approached life when you thought it was all about you. Uh, there's been times in my life where I've approached it as though it's all about me. And, and there's been times probably where we've all come to a local church and we said, you know what, I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't get anything out of it because we thought the goal was us. We thought we were at the center of everything. And, and in this type of thinking, I say that to say this, that type of thinking, that says, hey, what's in it for me? 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 Every time we ask that question, as it relates to our faith, as it relates to the local church, as it relates to relationships, as it relates to friendships, as it relates to leadership, as it relates to fellowship, wherever we're asking the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? If that's our biggest concern, it's never a benign question. It's never a harmless question because what's in it for me thinking will always be at the expense of someone around me. It's just the way that it is. So it's never in a vacuum, it's never benign, it's never isolated. If the biggest concern in my life is what's in it for me, if we're friends and it's all about what's in it for me, it's gonna be at the expense of people around me. If you're in a relationship with somebody and it's all about what's in it for you, what's in it for you, what's in it for you, it's gonna be costly to the people around you. So this type of thinking, we gotta pay attention to it. And Peter and the disciples, they, they've been harboring this type of thinking for some time and we're gonna find out just how deeply embedded it is. So Jesus, he responds to Peter when he says, what's in it for us? What's in it for me? It says, Jesus said to him and said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things in the new world to come, the kingdom to come, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you will have followed me uh, those of you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's like Peter saying thrones, throne. Did he say thrones? Did he say thrones? Matthew, did you write that down? He said thrones. Guys, thrones. <laughs> thrones, yes. Come on, somebody. Thrones. He's getting a throne. I knew it. We're getting thrones too. We're getting thrones. And then it's like, oh, that's all they could hear. It's like, oh my, good. oh my goodness, Jesus, could you say that again? You got a throne, there's gonna be some more thrones. You know, I don't know, um, with those thrones, I, I don't know, be for us, uh, you know? And so they're like, oh my gosh, this, this sounds great. This is amazing. And then Jesus, he kind of continues to unpack what he's talking about. He says, and everyone, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father, mother, wife, children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And so what Jesus says here is so encouraging, it's so reassuring for every follower of Jesus. He says that whatever, whatever has felt like a loss for you in your pursuit of following Jesus, 
Whatever felt like a sacrifice for you in your pursuit of following Jesus, whatever was an inconvenience for you because you decided to follow Jesus, whatever felt like a loss or a sacrifice or an inconvenience will one day become gain, will one day become profitable to you in the world to come. You'll be glad you did. And even if Jesus, even if Jesus and following Jesus cost you everything, Jesus is in the end, you will have lost nothing and you will have actually gained everything. So even if you give up everything, in the end, you're not gonna miss anything. And his point is, and his point's really important, you will never regret the steps that you took, the choices you made, the resources you spent, and the time you invested in following Jesus. You just won't. Now I'm gonna repeat it again because you need to hear that and you need, you, you need to receive that. You will never regret the, the steps you took, the choices you made, the resources you spent, and the time you invested in order to follow Jesus. Amen. Jesus says, whatever you do, whatever it costs you in order to follow me, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Let's all say that together at all of our churches. It's going to be worth it. One more time. It's going to be worth it. Now, some of you, you may be in a season right now, you may be in a season of your life in your faith where you really wonder, are the steps you're taking really worth it? Are the choices that you're currently making, are they really worth it? Are the resources that you're spending, are they really worth it? Is the time that you're investing, is it really worth it? It's not Trevor, it's not the church saying this, but your savior, your king, Jesus, is saying to you, yes, it is, and yes, it will be worth it. So keep on taking those steps, keep on making those choices. Yeah, go ahead. I'll let two of you go ahead and start. <laughs> keep on spending those resources and keep on investing your time because it is worth it. Now, this continues and the scene changes, but it's on the heels of, of all of this conversation. It says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him, or Jesus would be talking about himself, they will hand me over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a friend that you love and care about or a family member that you love or care about just, just basically tell you, you know, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die and it's gonna happen soon. This was heavy. This was, this was an emotional thing for Jesus. So much so, he, he knows what's ahead of him. And, and it's gonna cause him great stress and anxiety later on in this very week in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is a heavy moment. He said, I'm gonna be ridiculed. I'm gonna be mocked. There's gonna be a crown of thorns. They're gonna fillet my back open. They're gonna nail me to the cross. Guys, I'm gonna suffocate in front of you. You know what a crucifixion looks like. I'm gonna suffocate in front of you and it's gonna be horrible and it's gonna be painful and it's gonna be bloody. It's gonna be bad, but they're not listening. You know what they're thinking about? Thrones. They're thinking about payday. They're thinking about what's in it for them. They're already planning the party. And that's what self-involvement does. That's what happens when our greatest interest becomes self-interest. We can't even pay attention to the pain and the concern 
and the circumstances of other people. We're unmoved by it. We're unfazed by it. We shake our heads, we nod, we, we turn sideways, but all the while, our whole mentality is, what's in it for me? 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 And, and life is lived all about me and all about mine and all about what about me and what's gonna happen to me and how's this impact me that we lose the ability to see the pain of people right in front of us. So Jesus says all this and it says, then, right then, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons kneeling down, ask the favor of him. To which I would say, seriously? And now you know what that means. I'm like, what? Did you just, mom, did you just listen to what he said? Your sons, James and John, did you just listen to what he said? He, he just tells them about a horrific way that he's gonna die and she comes up and says, hey, um, can I ask you a favor? <laughs> what? Yeah, can I ask you a favor? Will you do something for me? I'm not gonna tell you what it is, just say yes. Kind of like how our kids like to do. I'm gonna, Mom, I'm gonna ask you a question. Dad, I'm gonna ask you a question, yes or no. But just say yes or no. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you what it is yet, but just say yes. It's like, no. <laughs> tell me what you're talking about. This is so annoying. This is so irritating to read. This whole scenario, when I think about it, it, it just really, it just kind of ticks me off. Because when we see that kind of self-centeredness in other people, we don't like it. But we very seldom ever see that same type of self-centeredness in ourselves. She's just, pain, she's just deaf and blind to the pain and to the moment of what Jesus is actually sharing and what he's talking about. Now, this is the mom to James and John, you know, part of the 12. Some think it may be the sister of Mary, which makes her Jesus's aunt. This is like a family thing. This is like family trying to jockey for position. This is like family trying to lever, leverage their relationships with each other, you know, for personal gain. You know, this is like friends and family, you know, what's in it for me? I, I, need to, I need to make sure that I've got mine taken care of. I need to make sure I get my cut. I need to make sure that I, I got what's coming to me. And, and so Jesus looked at her and said, well, what is it? What is it that you want, he asked? And she said, well, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand or the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, I know you said something about some thrones, but let's talk about the thrones that are closest What's in it for us? Because every mama would love to see her son's throne next to the throne. Every good mom, every good dad would love to see their kids thrown right up against the main attraction. Now, Jesus, I'm not saying these other guys, these other 10, they're okay. But my two sons are better. And we've really been thinking about what's in it for us. Peter thinks he's given up some things, but we, we've, we've given up some things. So what's in it for us? And this all comes from an idea of greatness. She wants her sons to be great. She's a parent who wants her children to be great. And so the word emerges. The word emerges from a culture of a particular group of people at a particular time and their idea of what great looks like and what great means. And for this mama and for James and John, the idea of greatness is about position. The idea of greatness is about power. The idea of greatness is about proximity. 
Let's place these thrones right beside of his thrones. And that will be the epitome. That will be the epitome of what it means to be great. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And this cup was a metaphor of his suffering. It was a metaphor of his calling, his destiny. This is the same cup that Jesus is gonna say, hey, if it's your will, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will, not my will be done. Can, can you do what I'm about to do? Can you drink from the same cup that I'm about to drink from? Let me tell you about these guys because we learn a lot about ourselves and we learn a lot about the tendency that all of us have. They wanted glory without any grief. Let me tell you a little secret about the New Testament. The New Testament never promises glory without grief on the front side. Matter of fact, Paul is very clear in the book of Romans. There's gonna be suffering and the suffering of this present world, it's not gonna be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed. So, so the, the Bible never promises glory without grief. Grief is just part of this storyline of the planet and the world that we live in where sin is breaking forth and sin is ruining things. There, there's a group of people, you know, that want glory without grief. There's a group of people who want success, but they're not interested in significance. It's like, I just want success. I wanna be successful, but I'm, I'm, really not, I'm really not interested in significance, living a significant life, being a person of significance. You say, what's the difference? There is a difference. There's a lot of successful people who aren't very significant. And there's a lot of significant people that we wouldn't call very successful. There's people who live their lives and like James and John in this moment, they're looking to be served. They're, they're not looking to serve. They want glory without any grief. They want success without the concern of significance. What's in it for me? And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or the left hand is not mine to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my father. And when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant, indignant I say, indignant with the two brothers, not because of their selfishness or self-centeredness, but because they beat Jesus to the punch. It was like, they got to ask first. Their mom got up there before they could get up there and they were just, now they're upset that they're gonna be left out. Now they're upset that there's not gonna be anything in it for them. And again, it's like also silly. It's like, and we've seen this play out in a thousand different ways. You've seen it, I've seen it. We, we don't need frames of reference. We've seen this in families. We've seen this among friends. We've seen this in churches. This type of, this type of thinking, this type of living, so now they're mad that there's not gonna be anything in it for them, that they're gonna miss out, they're gonna be left out. And so Jesus sees what's happening. And Jesus said, okay, we gotta have a talk. And when Jesus puts his hands together and says, we gotta have a talk, <laughs> it's gonna be important. And so Jesus says, guys, listen, he called them together and he said, you know what? You know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles they lord it over the people they rule over and their high officials exercise authority over them. So he's talking about a group of people in the way they define greatness. He said, among the non-believers, among those Gentiles, among those cultures where this word greatness has emerged with a very different meaning that I'm about to tell you, there's a group of people out there who, who identify the idea of greatness uh, about having a primary allegiance to themselves. Some folks' idea of greatness 
can only be achieved when their greatest interest is self-interest. There's a group of people all around you, disciples of mine, who believe that you are only who you are by how much you have and how much power you have and how much proximity to power you have and how much resources you have, that there's a whole group of people around you. That's how they define greatness. It's by your possessions, it's by your power, it's by your pedigree. That's how people around you define greatness, Jesus would say. But then Jesus looks at them and says, not so with you, not so with you. Let the culture define greatness the way that culture wants to define greatness. Let the West define greatness the way the West wants to define greatness. But not so with you. Not so with you. It's different for you. There's a different mindset that I want you to adopt. There's a different ethic that I want you to live by. There's a different set of standards, a different set of values. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great. And I love this. Jesus invites us to want to be great. He invites us to ambition. He invites us to all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. He says, but whoever wants to become great among you, you must be a servant. If you wanna be great, be a servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Jesus said, if you wanna know what winning in life is, winning in life is putting everybody else first and yourself last. But that doesn't feel like winning. Matter of fact, that that feels a lot like losing. That feels a lot like I'm not getting anything out of it. Who's Who's gonna watch out for me? Who's gonna look out for me? Who's gonna meet my need? If I'm supposed to put everybody else first, what's in it for me? Jesus would say, greatness. Jesus is contrasting the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world teach us to to ask, what can you do for me? What's in it for me? The kingdom of God says, there's a better question. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? What can I do for you? The kingdom of God says every relationship you're involved in, every friendship you're a part of, every community of faith that you choose to be a part of, you show up and make everybody else first, you make yourself last, and you ask the question, what can I do for you? And Jesus said, that's winning. Jesus said, that's greatness, because it's better to serve than be served. Just as the son of man, he said, guys, he didn't come to be served but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Guys, I'm the king and not even the king showed up to be served. I showed up to serve. Who's ever heard of such a thing where the main guy shows up to say, how can I serve you? How can I use my power, my position, my possessions, my resources? How can I leverage my connections? How can I leverage everything that I have for you? Who does that? Jesus said, I'll tell you who does that. Great people do that. Jesus had all the power. He had all the position. He had all the possessions, but he didn't seek to be served. 
And if someone said he was the most important person in every room he walked into, and even though he was the most important person in every room he walked into, he chose to make everybody else in the room more important than himself. Because Jesus knew those who serve self, they become small, but those who serve others become great. You serve yourself, in the end, you'll only be left with yourself and you won't even like yourself because self-centered people become small. Self-centered people get so small, there's no room for anybody else in their life. There's no real relationship. There's no real intimacy. There's no real sharing. There's no community because we're so small. Nobody else can fit in our circle. Jesus is trying to get us to know that selfishness makes us the worst version of ourselves. And when we posture ourselves with self-centeredness and selfishness, we just become small and insignificant. You know who the worst parents are? The worst spouses, the worst friends, the worst workers, the worst bosses, the worst politicians, the worst citizens. You know who they are, the worst ones? It's the ones who show up to every meeting and every relationship and every encounter driven mostly by what's in it for me. What's in it for me? Jesus would say, listen, pay attention. It's better to serve than be served. It's one of our core values at our church. It's better to serve than be served. It's a better choice. It's a better way of life. Your head will be lighter when it lays on the pillow at night, when you have spent your day, when I have spent my day thinking, what can I do to serve you rather than trying to figure out a way to get you to serve me, to serve my agenda, to serve my need, to serve my angle, to serve my advancement. It's a better way to live. A couple of days later, Jesus takes them to the upper room and they celebrate Passover together and they're eating. They're all eating together. This is the same night he's gonna be arrested that's gonna to lead to his crucifixion. And as they're eating Passover, this is what John said, on the hills of just what we've read, it says, so Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he began to wash their feet. It was a task that was reserved for the lowest of servants. He washed their smelly, nasty feet. He washed the feet of Peter, who would deny him later that night. He washed the feet of Thomas, who would doubt him after the resurrection. And he washed the feet of Judas, who would betray him in just a short while. And he did it to punctuate everything that he had taught them so that they would never forget it. He said, you call me teacher, you call me Lord and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you, an example that you should do as I have done for you. What's been true of me, guys, I want to make 
true of you. I want it to become true of you. As the most important person in every room, I made the most important thing serving the people in that room. So it doesn't matter if you're in a room where you are the most important or you're not the most important. You walk into every room thinking, what can I do to serve them? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to help? I want you to make that true of you, Jesus says. I want you to make that true of you, Trevor. I want that to be the way you live your life. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things. And you will be blessed if you what? Do them. You will become the best version of yourself when you live this way. I will be the best version of myself when I choose to live this way. It won't always feel like the best version. It won't always feel like the best choice. But Jesus says, if you wanna be great, this is what it truly means. If you wanna be the greatest, then be the greatest servant of all. Put everybody else first. Prefer everybody else above yourself and put yourself at the back of the line and reject the thought that says, if I do that, what's gonna be in it for me? So well, why don't we do it? For a lot of us, it's just busyness, just busyness. Somebody said, you know, you devote a little of yourself to everything so much that you have devoted a great deal of yourself to nothing. You just spread so thin. You just got so much going on and so many options and there's no time. Just so busy. Well, I, I don't have time to ask what can I do or how can I serve? I don't have time to volunteer. I don't have time to be a part. I'd serve more, but, but what can I do? You know, we always, we always got a reason. So I, I wanted to start today, and like I said, I want you to be back next week. I wanted to say, don't throw in your towel. Jesus didn't throw in his towel. Jesus saw this as an instrument of greatness. He saw this as a flag of surrender. He saw this as the pathway to greatness. So don't throw in your towel. Don't throw in your towel to busyness or apathy or discouragement or whatever other excuse or reason that you may have for not spending time serving. Positioning yourself to say, what can I do for them? What can I do for you? See, you can't find greatness until you lose your excuses. You just can't. Well, I'd serve at the church, but I tell you, I'm just so busy. I got so much going on. I, you know, I, and, and I, I'm telling you, I got, I've, I've got an agenda. I do. I believe the local church is the greatest mechanism through which we serve the world, through which we serve our communities and serve our families. It's a great place to get started to serve, to be a part of a system, to be part of a community where you can leverage your gifts, as the scripture talks about. But, but as long as you have an excuse of why you can't and why you won't, there's an excuse standing between you and greatness. As long as you're too busy to serve in your family or your friends or your community or wherever you are, it's, there's something standing between you and greatness. When Jesus that night took out his towel, he took away all of our excuses. Because if the son of man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. If the king of all kings said, how can I serve you? How much more should those who name the name of Christ, how much more should those who say, Jesus is my king, how much more should we lose all of the excuses and begin to go look for ways that we can serve and in doing so, become great along the way. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you that as we see him with a towel, there are no excuses. So God, in my own life, Lord, would you just expose selfishness and self-centeredness and for all the times and all the places and all the ways that I say, what's in it for me, what's in it for me, what's in it for me. And God, help us to do the hard work of putting everybody else first and ourselves last, because that's what you said winning looks like. That's what you said greatness is. And I pray greatness for us all. In Jesus' name, for his sake. And everybody said,